You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Amen. Well, good morning. We are in a series called Making Sense of the Old Testament God. Making Sense of the Old Testament God, where we're reflecting on who is this God of the Old Testament? Because at times it feels a bit odd that the God of the Old Testament feels very different to the God of the New Testament. That was my concern for many years of, I like this guy called Jesus, but he seems to be loving and forgiving, whereas this God of the Old Testament seems to be mean and angry all the time. And that will undermine our faith if that turns out to be how we view the Bible, how we view God, kind of a schizophrenic God. We don't know how he's gonna be one day to the next. So throughout this year, we're diving into bits of the Old Testament to really see its beauty. And spoiler alert, as we dig into it, we see that the God of the Old Testament is perfectly in line and consistent with the person of Jesus as we understand the Old Testament better. And we've got some resources for you, which are companions to this series, because I can't do everything in 30 minutes on a Sunday, but I would recommend that you dig into some of these resources to help you. If you're like me, if you've got questions, two books to read, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball, and uh, John Mark wrote a book called God Has a Name. Watch The Bible Project, great short films on a lot of the Old Testament stuff, which is super helpful. And then a really wonderful lecture by Josh Butler when he was a guest at Bridgetown Church, our friends up in Portland, and he spoke on violence in the Old Testament. If you Google that, it'll just come up. And one of the best, one of the best overviews of making sense of violence and God's love in the Old Testament. And I particularly draw your attention to that because that's what we're digging into, into today. What does it mean for God and to be angry and his violence in the Old Testament. We're focusing in, in this series, in a particular passage in Exodus, where God describes himself. Where God describes himself. Do you remember in Exodus 34, he says to Moses, look, here's my name, Yahweh, Yahweh. I want you to know my name, because the word God is just generic, like human is generic. You don't really get to know someone if they say, hi, I'm human. Same thing with God. You don't really get to know who God is if he just says God because God is used for lots of different things. So he says, here's my name, Yahweh, which means I am who I've always been and I will be whoever I am. That he is consistent. He's eternal and consistently who he is. And so he goes on and says, and I'm consistently these things. So in Exodus 34, we read Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now that last slide feels really odd and against the first slide, which is a great little microcosm of our challenge with the Old Testament. Some bits we go, that's awesome, I love that compassion word. But then we go, ooh, I don't like that. Why would you punish kids for what their parents do? Don't like that. And, and yet what we'll see is we ought to never be afraid of the Old Testament and just move on. But let's dig into it. In a couple of weeks, I'm gonna dig into that bit in particular. And what we'll see is it isn't what we first think. 
It is consistent with him being gracious and compassionate. So come back in a couple of weeks for that. But today we want to look at one of the ways that God described himself, which I had a trouble and a problem with. I had a problem with for many years, which is this. God describes himself as slow to anger. Slow to anger. I didn't like that God described himself as someone who gets mad. Someone who gets angry. I grew up in a context where I thought for many years that that was the predominant view of God as some angry parent who was just disillusioned and disappointed with me. That daily I'd let him down. And so when I came to worship and when I came to prayer, I have a God who's just literally going, you're a waste of space. I'm angry. And then besides that, I kind of thought, man, everybody is so loving and kind and and yet my neighbors seem to be more loving than God. And this cultural moment right now where outside of the church, people in LA generally have an openness to spirituality. I haven't heard anyone say, ooh, yeah, no, my view of God, oh, I love my view of God because like, he's angry. <laughs> no one quite says that. We want words like compassionate and loving, accepting. But we have this problem and this difficulty with anger. What does it mean for God to be angry? Because even though we have a problem with it, in the Bible, Yahweh definitely gets mad. No two ways about it. You can't white out the areas of the Bible where God says he's angry. If you did, you'd white out a lot of pages. So what's going on? Psalm five is one example where God says he's angry. And it's helpful for us because it describes it quite well. He says, the psalmist says, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, the bloodthirsty and deceitful, you, Lord, detest. Now, these are strong words. Hate, detest, destroy. I thought God was a God of love. But these words are exactly because he's a God of love. You see, you look at this psalm again and you realize why God is angry and who he is angry with. It says he's angry with the wicked. He's angry with those who do evil. He's angry with the arrogant. He's angry with those who are bloodthirsty. God gets angry at the things that destroy his loving creation. He gets angry because he loves you and me and the world he creates. And so when he sees abuse, when he sees racism, when he sees predatory behavior, when he sees corporate greed, when he sees the evils in our society, because he loves you, because he loves the world he created, he gets angry. His anger is a function and a complement to his love. See, anger is a sign that you love something. Anger is a signal that something you care about is under threat. And for God, 
It's you and me. It's his creation. Pure love cannot stand by when you see those whom you love being destroyed, being hurt. We all know, even in our own lives, there are times when the healthy, emotional, mature response to a situation is anger. We even know that in a society that tries to bury anger. You know, love is being redefined constantly in this moment in our society. And one of the definitions is love is tolerating, there's tolerance. Now I'm all for, actually a big supporter of people being themselves, not fitting into any stereotype that isn't them. That maybe you grew up in an environment where, you know, through tradition, parents' expectations, you have to try and be squeezed into a mold you're not. And it's like, no, I love them. No, you be you, right? Be who God created you to be. Don't try and be someone else. You'll be terrible at that. But you're pretty good at being you if you let yourself be you. So I love that. But what I don't love and what none of us really love, if that goes as far as, well, we'll just support anything you do. Because at times we know that we overstep the mark and what we do is harmful to others is evil perhaps. See, we all have a line where we go, oh no, no, we, we kind of have to draw a line there, right? We, we kind of have to say, I love you, bro, but no. That line is an echo of how we were made because God has a line and it's the most pure, loving righteous, good line where he goes, I made you to live within a system of goodness and beauty and love. But there's some things that have come into my, in our society which God draws a line, a firm line and goes, but I'm against those things because it will undermine and destroy the ones I created. God is like a parent. Throughout the Bible, he's referred to as a parent who so loves his children, he stands against and, and hates evil, destroying and hurting and wounding his children. Don't we want a parent like that? Don't we want a God who doesn't sweep injustice under the carpet, who doesn't tolerate evil in the world? In fact, even though we don't like the word anger when it comes to God, we so often say to God, why did you let that happen? Because we actually want God to intervene in the evil and the pain in this world. I mean, I think part of the reason why we struggle with God's anger is that we have defined anger in how we exhibit anger. And we exhibit anger in a less positive way than God. You see, I don't know about you, but for me, I can often get angry, not out of pure love for someone, but out of a broken ego or feeling embarrassed or shamed. I can, I can start to fight. I can start to lash out in anger. And it's not so much about protecting others, but about making me feel good. As someone once said, all shots are simply return fire. 
and we can come out fighting, not, and we can pretend it's God's anger, but really we're just hurt and protecting ourselves. Anger, from God's perspective, is holy and righteous and proportionate, but I don't know about you, but my anger can be wholly disproportionate because my loves are disproportionate. See, I can love my career too much, I can love finances too much, I can love anything too much, and when one of those is threatened, I can get angry. And people go, dude, why are you so angry? It's not a sign maybe of righteous anger, but of unholy desires that I'm trying to protect. My anger can often be more about revenge than justice. And of course, most of us are conditioned that anger is expressed in one of two ways, neither which way is God's. Yet culturally or familiarly, you can be raised in a way where anger is either one of these, either no anger or blow up anger, right? So I'm from Britain where we master no anger. <laughs> that when evil happens, we can simply say the mantra, Keep calm and carry on. I grew up in, the, in a Christian household where it was rude and immature to show anger. It was if you were truly mature, then you wouldn't really be angry. You'd be forgiving. You'd immediately not go anywhere with it. You would never raise your voice. But of course, all that did was a distorted view of who God is that we confuse and would get really confused when God is angry, but also it meant we would push anger down, not stand up for justice. And when you push anger down in your life, it basically destroys you from the inside out, physically, emotionally, relationally. You, you learn, the, <laughs> you learn the, the black arts of passive aggressiveness. You keep retreating from relationships and never confront anything. You keep doing geographics, as in moving into a new church, moving into a new system, but you don't confront anything. And you put a gospel message onto it, God's calling me somewhere else, or I love you, but I just don't feel God's calling me. It's like, yeah, dude, you're just angry, and you're not dealing with it. The other side is not just no anger, but blow up anger. This is less England, more other cultures, may I humbly suggest, may I humbly suggest more America? Certainly, uh, my wife teaches me more Australian. <laughs> but this is where there's no limit on how you express your anger. Anger's good, but there's no, there's no kind of maturity in how we express it. It's you get it out there. It's like a volcano erupting in a room. And you may be thinking this is holy anger, but then your mouth goes off and your actions go off. And not only do you take down the thing that you're angry with, but you take down a hundred people in a, square, in a square mile around you. You say too much. You, you can't control your mouth. And you start to take down people relationally because you've macheted people with words. No anger, destructive. Blow up anger, destructive. 
And we sometimes think, oh my gosh, is that God? But God says anger's good because it's an expression of love, but it's not no anger or blow up anger. It's this, it's slow to anger. (laughs) Slow to anger. God is saying there's a mature way of handling anger, a God-like way of handling anger. It's what Paul then later says. He says, in your anger, do not sin. It means you can, anger's good, but you can outwork it in a very dangerous way. Or you learn the God way, which is not diluting anger, but using it in a way that brings goodness, using it in a way that brings healing and justice. Slow to anger is a phrase to try and summarize what the Hebrew is saying because in the Hebrew, it's actually not slow to anger. It's a picture of something. It's a picture of long of nostrils. That's literally the Hebrew word. God is long of nostrils. Well, that means it's an idiom of the time that is, imagine something happens which rightly brings you anger. And you've got one of two ways of dealing with it. You could go, breathe in and then just explode. Or be long of nostril. <laughs> and then respond as God would respond. Long of nostril. It's not no anger. It's not eruptive anger. It's long of nostril anger. (laughs) The rest of the Old Testament helps us look at in illustrations what long of nostril anger looks like. What type of anger does God exude? The first thing we see, it's not quick tempered. In Proverbs 14, we read this, whoever is slow to anger, that phrase there is long of nostril, has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. See, quick-tempered is saying God is not, God's not gonna fly off the handle. Yes, he will see things that are wrong, but he's not gonna be volatile. He's not just gonna go after it straight away. He's not gonna lose his rag because those are destructive. They may make you feel good, but they destroy rather than rebuild. The Proverbs also say long of nostril anger is never out of control. In Proverbs 16, it's better a patient. Patient there is long of nostril person than a warrior. One with self-control than one who takes the city. See, God's anger is one who sees the, sees the injustice, sees the evil, breathes in the, the long nostril breath. and is in full full control of how he outworks his anger in ways that bring justice and healing. In other words, God is a master of his anger. Anger is not a master of God. And sometimes in our lives, when we're angry, they take over us as opposed to we bridle it and use it constructively. Then thirdly, The Old Testament shows us that God's anger is long-suffering, long-suffering. 
that he'll, he'll respond, but it'll take a while. Like he will say eventually enough's enough, but he's patient. It, God, God does get mad, but you really have to work at it. Great example of this is picking up again the story of Nineveh. Remember Jonah was a prophet asked by God to tell the Ninevites who were an evil bunch, you gotta stop doing this. He warns people. And God is showing his slow to anger by going, I could just intervene now because this is atrocious, but I'm gonna give you a chance. I wanna warn you. You think of the stories in the Old Testament where we go, why is God so angry? A lot of the time it's because he's gone, enough is enough. I've warned you. I sent Moses to warn you. I sent Abraham. I've sent people to warn you. This is what the prophets were constantly doing. Go tell that nation to stop it. I will not turn a blind eye to child sacrifice. I will not turn a blind eye to rampant evil in the world. And I thank God that eventually he goes, enough's enough. But there's a slowness as he tries to bring us to repentance. And that's what we see with Nineveh. They do repent. And so God stops. But then later on in prophet Nahum, we read that actually they go back to their wicked ways. And eventually we read this. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Now look at this next verse. It's a rehash of Exodus 34, the very description of God himself. Look, the Lord is slow to anger, but he's great in power. And he said he will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. In other words, look, he is gracious and compassionate, but he's slow to anger and eventually he will go, that's enough. That is enough. Like any good parent, you will draw a line and say that's enough. We see this throughout the Old Testament, particularly the challenging bits where we go, hang on a minute, what about this? Why did God do that? Why? And then once you get into the context of it, you realize, oh my gosh, in that culture, they were going, God, why are you giving people so much time to repent? Step in. And God eventually does say enough's enough. Moses said to Pharaoh 10 times, stop it. With escalating judgment. And God said, enough's enough. I've warned you nine times now. Enough's enough. We see this with Jesus. See, sometimes when we misread Jesus, we don't see his anger. But when we read Jesus faithfully, we see he gets angry at injustice. I love that near the end of his ministry, he is so fed up with the church, not being like him. Have you ever been angry at the church for that? I have. So angry at the religious leaders not being like Yahweh. And he's rebuking them the whole time in his ministry. Then eventually he goes to church, to the temple, and sees that far from blessing the outsiders, caring for newcomers like you guys do, they've set up a little gambling system outside to take money from them. And Jesus 
like Yahweh, says enough is enough. He takes a whip and drives them out of the temple courts. See, that's the kind of Jesus I respect. Who doesn't just keep going, oh, bless you. Who eventually says, enough's enough. This is the kind of God we want. This is the kind of God we respect. This is the kind of God I want to follow who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, but eventually will say enough's enough. This is our God who loves you and me and this world too much to let it be ravaged permanently by evil. So the question is, how does God outwork his anger. What does it look like throughout the biblical witness? How does he outwork his anger? He, yes, he's slow to anger, but eventually he says enough's enough. So what happens then? It's complex because God's a person who is complex and gonna deal with everybody and every situation as the case deserves. But there are themes, there's gonna be exceptions, but there are great themes in scripture of how God generally outworks his justice to push back evil in the world. And this, I summarized it like this. He outworks his anger through, and justice through present consequences, actively through human agency, and then thirdly, future judgment. First of all, through present consequences. There's a phrase throughout scripture, again and again and again, where God says, enough's enough, so I'm going to give you over to what you want. In other words, your will be done. I don't want that for you. This is gonna go badly for you. And in fact, I've been holding back the consequences of my love, and that's called grace and mercy. But my grace and mercy are not getting through to you. And eventually, enough's enough. I'm gonna take off the shield of your own consequences. Because my prayer is that as you face the consequences of your actions, that might wake you up to, the, to your destructive behavior. We see it in the Old Testament, where the prophets say, if you keep doing this, foreign nations will eventually come and destroy you. That is not saying God's gonna bring them, it's saying he's gonna stop preventing them and he will allow the consequences of your actions to stop what you're doing and hopefully wake you up and bring you to repentance giving people over to their desires I see this in my own life I want God to refine me and drive out the evil of my behavior and sometimes I look back at my life and it's like I'm a knucklehead and God has just to go, dude, you just gotta face the consequences of your own actions to try and wake you up. Because sin is its own reward. You sow what you reap. And sometimes God in his grace and mercy will allow that in your life to try and stop you, to try and turn you around. Whether it be relational fallout, marriage breakdown, financial ruin, loneliness and isolation, a loss of your job, See, a lot of these things we go, why did this happen a lot? Not all the time. And this is why community is important to discern what God is doing. But sometimes it's like, dude, you're reaping what you sow. 
And that may be the greatest kindness of God to you because you need to wake up. God's not always going to save you from your mistakes because you keep on unrelenting. And eventually he's going to go, enough's enough, bro. You need to feel the pain of this. You need to feel the consequences. The second way God's anger is on display, his righteous, loving anger to prevent evil in this world is what I say actively through human agency. We sometimes forget that God has created a pattern of the world. He told us what that is in Genesis 1 and 2, which means when God's will is to be done on earth, it's through you and me. We are made in his image to outwork the things of God. He doesn't like to bypass you and me. You think of that in all sorts of teaching. You don't hear an audible voice, you get someone like me, right? Blessing financial prosperity. God, help me pay my bills. Money does not generally just flow down from the clouds. He answers by going, I'm gonna tell this person in prayer to give a hundred bucks to this person over here because I've heard their prayer. He works through his church. Even when it's supernatural, like beyond our own human science, he intervenes, he'll still intervene through you and me. So if you go, Lord, I pray that you would heal me. God says, go to the elders of your church and get them to lay hands on you. Not because they have the power. He just, God said, look, I'm always gonna use my people. Well, when we shake our fists and go, God, intervene in the evil in this world. Where are you? Why are you not intervening? God has an answer. I struggled with this question and I remember listening to a podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Ask N.T. Wright Anything. He was a great theologian. And he was put this question, someone said, why does God not intervene and stop evil in the world? What is he doing? And N.T. Wright said, well, it's a complex question, but one of the main answers to that is he created you. He created his church as a means to fight injustice in the world. This is his answer. God weeps over injustice. He's angry at evil in the world. And so commands his church to outwork his holy anger, to fight back evil, to come against all forms of oppression, to push back racism, trafficking, greed, this is the job of the church, is people made in the image of God. And so when we cry out, God, why don't you do something? He almost, I can hear his voice going, get, what are you doing? Because that's, I will anoint you and fill you with my spirit to push back evil in this world. Church at its best historically, where we're so proud of those moments are where we see men and women rise up and say, in the name of Jesus, we are gonna do something about this. Enough is enough. That is the church at its best. Sadly, church at its worst, historically and even today, is, you know what? That's not my role. 
and I kind of like the greed of this world and therefore I'm gonna turn a blind eye. God equips and raises up a church to join him in seeing the evils of our city, evils of this world, and we say enough is enough. He wants to work through you and me. And then thirdly, God acts through future judgment. This is a sobering one. Because God, in his justice and his anger, because of his love, says, I'm not going to overlook injustice. That sometimes in our own time and space, he'll say it's enough and enough. But he said, I can guarantee there's going to be a day. It's called the day of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Where God himself says, I will eradicate evil once and for all. I defeated it on the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus, but there's one day I will come, and Jesus calls it the day of judgment. The day of judgment. It's sobering, isn't it? When was the last time you heard a sermon on the day of judgment? But here's the thing. When you are right with God through the work of Jesus, you can't wait for the day of judgment because you hear and resonate with the cries of those who are suffering under oppression in this world, suffering under abuse in this world, and you join with them and say, Jesus, how long will it be till evil is driven out once and for all in this world? How long? And that's where we don't like that God is slow to anger. Part of that slow to anger is he is waiting and waiting for some undefined time to call people to repent, to call people to come back to him. Because once the day of judgment comes, time's up. We're living in a time where the church is prophetically like Jonah saying, a day is coming where God will draw the line. And until then, you have time to relent and repent. Out of his love for you, turn back to him. but there will be a day when he calls time. And I thank God for that day. Because although we live in a little bubble in West LA where we aren't really penetrated too much by great evil, some of you are, if we actually just opened our eyes a bit more and talked to our police service and talked to those who are really in the know of what's happening down on Third Street, what's happening on the promenade, what's happening on the pier, what's happening in our streets, behind closed doors, behind curtains. You'll go, oh Lord, how, how long? Stop the evil in this world. There's one way which I hadn't put on the screen, the fourth way that God shows us his slow to anger. And it's the purest form of all. As we come into worship now, this is how God shows us the best way of what it means to be slow to anger. You see, slow to anger is going, I love you so much, I wanna give you time to repent before I say enough is enough. And the day of judgment is coming, and I still love you so much, I don't want you to face the judgment. But I can't just sweep things under the carpet. I have to get evil out of this world. John Stott, the great theologian, called this the great dilemma of God. 
how to eradicate evil out of this world without eradicating you and me. Because I don't know about you, but though I like to blame my enemies for what's wrong with the world, I'm part of the problem. And the great demonstration of God being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love with the way we see them all work together is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God himself came for he loved you. It wasn't for God so angry at the world that he sent his son. It's because he so loved the world. That he didn't want you to face the judgment that is inevitably coming. And so he took that judgment on himself. In order for that to be valid, he had to become human like you and me that he could faithfully represent you and me. And he died the death that we deserved that we might receive the forgiveness, the life, and the future that we don't. This is our God. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and rich in love. Let's stand together. As we stand, just love you to close your eyes. And our prayer team to come forward. And I don't know, this is quite a heavy, big, complex sermon. So I don't know where it's hitting you, but wherever it's hitting you, just process that with God. Process that with God. Father, as we come to worship you now, we thank you that you're a God who so loves us that you intervene with anger that says enough's enough. You intervened in the person of Jesus yourself to say enough's enough. There will be a day of judgment, enough's enough. But Lord, you're so gracious and compassionate all along you're calling us that you might offer us forgiveness. You might redeem us. You might rescue us and heal us to be people in this world who do bring justice and love and mercy to those around us. May we be that church that joins you in bringing healing and bringing goodness. So let's worship now, church. Our prayer team's at the front. Whatever you're going through, come forward for prayer. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.